How about I pray for us as we begin? Heavenly Father, as we come to this issue that brings together so many difficult questions and which has caused so much uh, acrimony and division as well as deep thinking, uh, we pray that you would have mercy on us. Please help us to think about these things carefully and with humility, uh, remembering how little we know of you in your transcendence. Please help us also to know how to think about the great revelation that we have of you and your son through the earthly life of Jesus and how that applies uh, to what we can know of you and how it should apply to the way we live and think in general. Please help us to speak and think well and carefully and with humility now to each other. Pray that uh, we would know the fellowship of your spirit uh, as we talk about Father and Son and Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the topic is uh, ERS, help or heresy. Oh, before I begin talking, has everybody got access to the handout? Have you got the link? If you don't, here's a link for you. tinyurl.com slash ersworkshop tinyurl.com slash ersworkshop. That'll bring it up, I think. Let me know if you have trouble. So, ERS, help or heresy. Uh, The topic, of course, is the modern evangelical debate over Trinitarian relations and how what we see in the earthly life of Jesus uh, applies to the Trinity and how and whether it helps us to think about human relationships as well. On one side of the divide, we have people subscribing to ERS or EFS or ERAS, variously eternal relational uh, subordination, eternal functional subordination, or eternal relations of authority and submission, variously described. On the other side, traditionally... We have egalitarians or evangelical feminists, perhaps. Uh, But more recently, uh, we also have people who describe themselves as complementarians who object to the arguments made by uh, traditional ERS, E-R-A-S or E-F-S people, um, or maybe argue that uh, Trinitarian relations shouldn't be used in this way at all. It's a decades-old debate going back to the 70s, but... If you kind of know the history of it, there was a big surge of activity in the 90s, triggered uh, by a number of things, uh, but they they included the publication of the Blue Book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, uh, and strong reactions and pushbacks from people like uh, Kevin Giles and Gilbert Bilizikian and Millard Erickson and others. That rumbled along through the 90s into the kind of 2000s. And then we had another big surge in 2016 uh, and that was brought on by uh, people at Reformation 21, Amy Bird and Liam Golliger and a whole lot of other people. Uh, So who has kind of read a bit about this? Um, Those those of you who have read the kind of 2016 onwards kind of posts and stuff, tried to keep 
uh, yeah, track. Uh, those of you who have read kind of the 90s stuff, um, hands up if you're kind of a bit aware of that. Some people, yep. And what about the, the 70s stuff? Um, yeah, good on you. That's great. Uh, it's a vast topic and it's been rumbling along for a good, good long time. So it's very daunting kind of working out how do we condense this into a kind of meaningful discussion. So what I'm going to try and do is just kind of give you a really brief kind of survey at 1,000 feet um, and then we can talk about it. If you want to kind of put up your hand and ask questions along the way, that's fine. I hope for it to be a bit of a discussion as we go along. Um, okay, let me, let me begin with a couple of quotes. This is for uh, an evangel called an Evangelical Statement on the Trinity by the um, Christians for Biblical Equality from 2011. God exercises perfect cooperative relationships. God models perfect love, respect, cooperation. God exemplifies a unity in diversity that we should emulate. Deference within the Trinity is mutual or mutually honour and defer to one another. God exemplifies a unity in diversity that we should emulate between the genders and practice in the global, multicultural, mutual submission and respectful cooperation of all humans. There's an egalitarian, mutual um, model for the Trinity, held out also as a model for human relations as well. And he's on the other side, George Knight from 1977. The ontological relationship analogous to that between man and woman, writes Paul, is that between father and son, 1 Corinthians 11.3. That Christ submits as son and as incarnate, i.e. because of certain ontological aspects, does not mean that he is inferior to the Father, nor does it cast doubt on his deity. In both cases, it is equal, uh, equals in relation to, relationship to one another. In both cases, one, because of his or her ontological and ordained role in relation to the other, acknowledges headship and submits. Um, those of you who have been reading in this might hear little alarm bells go off when you hear the, see the word ontological. Um, but I think that kind of partly shows us how uh, evangelical awareness of key words and reserved words has kind of advanced over the decades. Uh, some of the things that we read in these early accounts uh, reflect a kind of naivety or lack of awareness of some of the terminology and the problems using certain terms. Let me move on to initial observations. Well, one observation is that this is not just evangelicalism. Sometimes people, um, I guess this is particularly from the egalitarian camp in this debate, uh, talk about this as if this was just a complementarian kind of hick misunderstanding of the Trinity uh, and we're kind of, it's held by evangelical fools who aren't aware of church history. Actually, it's a broader um, issue that's, that's cropped up in um, uh, Orthodox theology and Catholic theology as well, and between them. Uh, there is, of course, a particular expression, and um, it applies in evangelicalism particularly to the gender debate, which I think you don't find so much in these other traditions. But it's there nonetheless. Have a look at these two quotes, one from an Orthodox uh, theologian uh, and one from Avery Dulles, Cardinal, um, quoting from um, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, of course, Pope Benedict. Uh, and here we see the application being made to church governance, the first among equals uh, principle being applied to ordination to bishops and so on 
uh, and being taken from the template of the Trinity. Alexander Schmemann, uh, the son is fully obedient to the father, but he is not subordinated to him. To ordain someone to a hierarchical function does not mean his elevation above the others, his opposition to them as power or, and submission. Or Avery Dull, uh, the non-hierarchical rendering of Trinitarian theology is apparently dictated by a desire to justify a democratic or congregational church order. Recent denials of the divine monarchy, Joseph Ratzinger contends, are distortions of the faith under the pressure of church politics. Just as God the Father rules in order to give life, so on earth the hierarchical ministers have power only for the purpose of service. Uh, so it's a broader thing. There's obviously uh, broader issues going on uh, in Christianity in general. And no doubt we could say uh, this is uh, developments within Christianity or discussions within Christianity forced by different understandings of person and, and historical understanding, movements, slight movements in the historical understanding of the Trinity as well. I think if you, again, very, very kind of high-level, um, thousand-foot kind of survey... If we looked back on the history of Trinitarian relations, one of the things I think we see happening is in the 19th century, a kind of move away from, um, or a kind of a, a philosophical um, shift away from any real understanding of the traditional relations between the persons, minimising of that, then followed by a kind of backlash which produced a social Trinitarian movement, especially in the 20th century. And now I think we're seeing another movement back against that uh, with the kind of resurgence of classical theology. Uh, I think the ERS debate has, has um, exposed how deep-rooted problems uh, and some misunderstandings or failings to understand are key topics in uh, uh, Trinitarian theology amongst evangelicals. I'm thinking here of the denials that we were getting in the 90s debates of eternal generation. And we see that on both sides. These days it's quite common again for one side to characterise the other side as you are the guys who kind of deny eternal generation. Uh, I had heard this most recently from Mike Bird uh, talking about uh, Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware is denying uh, eternal generation. And he is actually correct. They did both deny uh, that the Son was eternally from the Father. They describe the uh, eternal generation as simply a metaphor uh, for a style of relationship between the Father and the Son. The funny thing is that Mike Bird does it too in first edition of his Evangelical Theology, <laughs> which he doesn't mention. Uh, and we also see it from um, other egalitarians such as Millard Erickson, uh, in other words, on both sides, there was a, a lack of awareness of the seriousness of the issue of uh, the, the son's begottenness of the father or coming from the father eternally. In some cases, I think we have seen an unthinking anthropomorphism, um, sometimes approaching tritheism. Um, but that's part of a wider movement in, uh, towards social Trinitarianism in the, the 20th century too. So in one sense, what we are dealing with here is different flavours of social Trinitarianism. That is, people who, th who think of the, the Father, Son and Spirit as three guys who kind of um, cooperate and mutually defer, like we saw in the CBE statement. Um, or we think of them as three guys 
who uh, have a kind of hierarchical relationship, as we see perhaps in, in uh, George Knight's statement. Uh, but both of, both of those ideas of the three guys model needs to be held with a, in a very kind of careful way, if we want to put it like that, and, in, and it kind of understanding that it's an analogical statement at best, if we're going to talk about the Trinity in those terms. We'll talk, talk more about that. Another uh, deficiency I think we have sometimes, in, or we see in the, the various discussions uh, of this topic is a kind of kenotic theology uh, the idea that um, the son comes down to earth, he kind of leaves his divinity behind, comes down for a while and then pops back up again um, as if uh, the Trinity you know, dropped down to abinity for a little while. And then he goes back up and it's all, all good again. Um, so sometimes it's, it's stated a bit more carefully, but it, it's often there in the background or something like it. So in the CBE statement, it also says, not in the bit that I've quoted, it says, although Jesus in his human incarnation was limited in various ways, at his ascension he returned to his former place of authority and glory. Well, that's true, obviously. He, does re- he kind of does return to glory, uh, but he doesn't leave limitation, does he? Because he's always human. Even the transcendent Christ is, a, is man forever. And if you look at Revelation 1, for example, we see him receiving revelation from the Father to give to his servants. In other words, he's still a dependent person in his human nature. Uh, in Acts 1.7, after his resurrection, of course, we see that it's the Father who gets to say uh, when the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. Uh, Jesus doesn't stop being human, nor does he ever cease being God as if, that kind of his divinity was on a timeline like that. Uh, so we need to be careful about canonic understandings uh, of, of, the, of the incarnation. Uh, Gilbert Bilizikian actually also talks about uh, at, at the end, the, the completion of the incarnation where Jesus is, is reintegrated to supreme preeminence at the end of time. Again, very problematic way of understanding the incarnation. However, uh, on the, the flip side of this, I think uh, one benefit of the debate over ERS within evangelicalism has, has that it's, been, it's forced us to think through some of these things more carefully. I think there's a growing understanding uh, of a number of these issues. For example, uh, the awareness of uh, Grudem and Ware and Bird that uh, eternal generation is a very important part of our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, for example. Uh, a deeper uh, thinking about the wills of God, uh, or the will of God, I should say. Um, I think we have seen uh, a return to Nicene Orthodoxy too, and that's a great thing, I think, because Nicene Orthodoxy actually is biblical orthodoxy, as far as I could see it. Uh, so that's that second observation. And now uh, I've got four questions which might help us Think more. Does anybody want to kind of ask any questions, make any observations before I go into the, the questions? Now? Yeah, Richard. Mm. Yes, yeah, yeah, both he and Bruce Ware have now, now believed in the, etern- in the eternal generation. 
yeah, so they've, they've realised they were wrong, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure Millard Eric, Erickson has. I don't know. Okay, four questions. One, how do we conceptualise the Trinity? And the question here is uh, how we think about the relations between the Incarnation and the Trinity is going to partly depend on how we think of the Trinity to start with. So some models that we have uh, might make it very hard to find a relationship between what we see in the earthly life of Jesus and the relationship between Father, Son and Spirit in eternity. Uh, one of those, of course, is the idea that God is a superperson, and that the persons that we think of... Um, uh, Father, Son and Spirit are kind of surface manifestations who don't really have relationships with each other, only relations of origin. Uh, so they're not, it's not a thick idea. All the kind of heavy lifting is done by the essence, which it is, is, is itself kind of thought of in personal terms. Uh, we get that at one point with Thomas Aquinas, for example, when he talks about uh, how the, es the divine essence might have become incarnate by itself, not one of the persons of the Trinity. Uh, we get some modern examples of that too, which I'll mention now. Another model of the Trinity, which will make it hard to, to kind of relate the earthly life of Jesus to the Trinity, is the symmetrical perichoresis model. That is the idea uh, that the Father and Son, for example just kind of are blurred together and there's giving and taking and nothing ever really begins anywhere. Uh, and if we ask whose idea it was to create the world uh, or whose power it was uh, that created the world, well, there's no real answer because all we have is kind of this dynamic back and forwards. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of a vague, uh, blurry kind of understanding of the Trinity. It used to be very popular, I think, uh, toward the end of the 20th century. Uh, but less popular now, I think. I think it's kind of going out. out. There is, of course, a, a, a biblical form of perichoresis. When I say perichoresis, I mean uh, mutual indwelling. Um, uh, it's, a, it's not a biblical term as such, but it's, uh, it's one that was picked up or created initially to describe the kind of relations we see in John's Gospel, uh, where Jesus talks about him being in the Father and the Father being in him. In the Nicene form... Uh, that kind of perichoretic relationship uh, is, embodies the or, or expresses the order of the persons. The Son is in the Father uh, because he extends the Father in some sense. His presence is the presence of the Father. Uh, and vice versa because um, uh, uh, the Father is in the Son because it's all his power and words and, and actions that we see Jesus doing. To see me is to see the Father, he says in John 14. Um, again, though, that's going to be hard. If we have the kind of idea of the, just a kind of vague symmetrical perichoresis, the, the modern version, it's going to be hard to see how the stuff in John's Gospel um, relates to it. Or we're going to, we're going to say, this is just for Jesus' time on earth. Uh, this idea of him uh, doing the Father's commands... Uh, the Father working through him, that's just, that just belongs to his humanity. It's not a reflection of his filial nature. 
Um, another model, uh, well, actually, there's a, there's a couple of models, is the social model. And that might or might not um, support a, um, a connection to the earthly life of Jesus. If we have the kind of uh, democratic social model, as we see with people like Cornelius Plantinga, and I guess we see it a bit in that CBE statement, uh, then, again, Jesus submits to the Father only in his human life, and then he kind of goes back up to heaven and they kind of resume their peer relationship. Uh, or uh, we might think of the, the social relationship again in hierarchical terms, which will say, oh, he's just doing on earth what he does in heaven. I'm going to commend the, the, the idea that I think comes out of Nicaea, and that is that there's an analogy between Jesus in his eternal uh, relation to the Father and his earthly relationship. It's not the same thing. There are differences. Uh, his human nature uh, does create a kind of different dynamic because when he's living as a man with his glory veiled uh, and suffering and going through time and receiving words kind of in a human brain, using human ears, uh, it's going to be different from uh, him being the Father's eternal glory outside time and space and everything. Uh, but at the same time, this kind of idea of fromness that I was talking about in my talk earlier crops up in both cases. It's expressed very differently, but the fromness is there in both cases. Let me just kind of uh, show a few examples. Uh, this is Gregory of Nyssa talking about uh, the eternal relations of father and son. There's no divergence of will between the father and son. As if, uh, it's as if a, a man should look at himself in a glass. The copy will, in all respects, be conformed to the original. Our Lord, the image of the invisible God, is immediately and inseparably one with the father in every movement of his will. If the father excuse me, will anything, the son who is in the father knows the father's will, or rather he himself is the father's will. Uh, the idea there being uh, that there is no separation in, in eternity between father and son at all. And yet there's also order. Whatever the father wills, the son immediately knows and wills, just like the father. Uh, because he, in one sense, has the, the whole, whole of the father's will in him. Uh, here's a more interesting, oh, they're both interesting actually. Here's another interesting statement from Augustine. For the father is greater than I, and the head of the, the woman is the man, and the head of the man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. These statements have had a place given them, partly with a view to that administration of his assumption of human nature in accordance with which it is said he emptied himself, not that wisdom was changed, since it is absolutely unchangeable, but that it was his will to make himself known in such humble fashion to men. So he's saying, in other words, these statements are partly due to the fact that he's living as a human being. They relate only to his human nature. And partly it was with a view to the consideration that the son owes to the father that which he is, whereas the father owes whatsoever he is to none. So in other words, these kind of statements which he's saying apply to the human nature of Jesus also in some sense apply to his eternal sonship. Uh, there is a, he's not using the word, but I'm using it, congruence between uh, his, what we see happening in his human life and what is going on in his eternal generation or his eternal fromness from the Father. And Thomas Aquinas, the Father's 
showing and the son's hearing, speaking of John 5, 20 and 30, are to be taken in the sense that the father communicates knowledge to the son as he communicates his essence. The command of the father can be explained in the same sense as giving him from eternity knowledge and will to act by begetting him. Or better still, this may be referred to Christ in his human nature. Again, same kind of having it both ways. Uh, Both Augustine and, and Thomas Aquinas seeing this kind of congruence between the human life of Jesus and his eternal life. Differences, obviously, uh, but, a, but a, some kind of similarity of pattern. Uh, well, one, one point here to, to note, too, of course, is that in, in medieval theology, that there was one of the topics they liked to talk about uh, was why did Jesus come to earth? Uh, or why did the Son come to earth? Uh, and people like Peter Lombard and Thomas Aquinas and others who followed him were insistent that any of the persons of the Trinity might have come to earth. And as I said, Thomas even thinks the essence might have just showed up. Uh, but at the same time, they were all of, a, of the same mind that it was particularly appropriate for the Son to become the man because he is already the Word of God. He's already the one who, so therefore he's the one who brings the Word of God. Uh, because he's from the Father, uh, it preserves that order when he comes uh, into our world uh, to be the Son of God there again. Um, also, note that none of these examples that I've given are talking about an agreement between persons. They're not, uh, they're not contemplating the, the distinction that I made earlier in my talk between will uh, and uh, free action or decision. That really kind of comes, I think, most clearly with the, the Puritans Thomas Goodwin, Jonathan Edwards, and so on. Two, question two. Does Christ's humanity conceal or reveal who he is? I wonder what you think. Um, on one hand, uh, Philippians 2, he made himself nothing, um, emptied himself. Uh, we see him as a man, are limited and changeable and humiliated and suffering. Uh, he learns obedience, according to Hebrews 5.8. And yet at the same time, we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten son, don't we? Uh, we we've, um, what he does in as a man reveals who he is now as the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him, he says, as Judas goes off to betray him. And Revelation 5, uh, it's because of his uh, purchasing men for God by his blood that he is glorified and known to us. I've already said that Jesus remains human and dependent in his his humanity. Um, And that reflects, I think, uh, the eternal patterns of his relationship with the Father as well as providing an, an extremist version of it. And yet, uh, this display of love is something that we are to look to and not look past. So, uh, in John 14, Jesus says, The prince of this world is coming, so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Jesus is very keen for us to know uh, and to remember that he loves his father and does what his father says. 
In other words, this is not something to hasten past, uh, forget about my humanity, go on to my glory. No, his glory comes through his humiliation and his, also through his obedience to the Father. Uh, there's no sense, I think, that Christ's humanity is, a, is something temporary to be shucked off uh, at the earliest possible opportunity. Uh, no, his humanity is the means by which he honours his Father and his Father honours him because he remains human forever, even though his humanity is exalted and glorified. And this leads to the next question. Uh, question three, have we been barking up the wrong tree here? That is, would it have been more helpful, and I'm saying yes, would it have been more helpful for us to have, instead of immediately leapt from uh, the incarnation to talking about the uh, transcendent trinity apart from the, the humanity of Christ, uh, to have talked about how Christ's humanity itself is eternal, uh, that his human life leads on to his heavenly life still as a man. Uh, I think that would be helpful because we have very limited knowledge of the Logos apart from uh, his human existence. We meet him as Jesus, really. We know that he's the creator and sustainer of the world. Uh, we know he's there. Uh, we, can, we can kind of uh, extrapolate and draw things from scripture about him being sent and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but mostly what we see is Jesus as a man. And Jesus as a man forever. So talking about Trinitarian relations might have been uh, a distraction when we could have been talking about Jesus' relationship to the Father in eternity and how that might be related uh, to human relations as well. And question four. Uh, does the relationship between the Father and Son provide a template for human relationships? Well, yes, I guess, because 1 Corinthians 11 says so. Uh, at least in the eternal humanity of Christ. Uh, uh, God is the head of Christ. Uh, Christ is the head of men, and uh, man is the head of woman, says Paul. So yes, in this, this term at least, there is some kind of analogy, some kind of uh, congruent pattern. And yes, I think we can... Uh, look at the patterns we see between the father and son and say this is a good model of love too. Uh, the father is first in the, in the Godhead. How does he use his priority? He uses his priority to make his son the heir of the world. You know, Thomas Goodwin said earlier, um, out of all the frames of worlds he kind of could have created, he, cre he chooses one uh, which will exalt his son and glorify his son. And of course, what do we see in response from the son? We see his honouring the father and doing everything he says and delighting. Uh, his, food, his food is to do what his father says. Uh, so yes, this is a good model, I think, for us. Um, however, uh, the Bible doesn't make as much of it uh, as we perhaps have. We spend a lot of time talking about this question. Uh, the Bible is much more interested, if we're talking about gender relations, for example, of mapping them onto the relationship between Christ and the church. That is the analogy that the Bible mostly gives us. And we should remember, of course, that Jesus isn't God's wife. He's God's son. Uh, so we need to be very 
careful, I think, in, in not overstressing or overloading a basic analogy that we see in 1 Corinthians 11 or applying it in every circumstance. I think part of our duty as careful Bible readers is to let the analogies that God gives us speak according to their weighting. I think another point to, to make here is that the most important application of the father-son relationship uh, to gender relations comes in 1 Peter 2, uh, where for both men and women, the temp- and slaves and everybody as well, of course, uh, the template is, is Jesus who looks to him who judges justly uh, and there, thereby relates to people with love and without kind of lashing out. So in other words... His relationship with the Father is supposed to be the template for our relationship to the Father uh, so that we can then relate to uh, husbands and wives and bosses and whoever um, in a gracious and Christ-like way. So the, the, the pattern works slightly different there. Conclusion. Uh, I think there are dangers on both sides in this debate. There, are, there is a legitimate and real de, uh, uh, risk if we stress the kind of um, ERS kind of idea that we will end up with some kind of tritheism or, or, or ontological subordination. Uh, we have to be very careful to uh, insist that the Father, Son and Spirit have one will. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa, I think, is a helpful corrective there for us. Uh, so we, we do risk... Uh, dishonouring God's son if we make him subordinate in an ontological sense. On the other hand, uh, what I see more and more, I think, on the other side uh, is a danger of dishonouring the father. What I'm seeing more increasingly now uh, is a a hyper-Western model where God is like a person um, within whom we find the other persons and everything comes from this super person. So the father doesn't really have anything to do anymore. Uh, it's, uh, he's just kind of, if he's anything, he's just a, a reflex or the first manifestation of what the essence is doing. Um, to name names, I, I think I see that in, uh, to, a little, to a degree, not, not across the board, uh, to a degree in Matthew Barrett's recent Simply Trinity book, where he accuses ERS people of taking honour from the essence and giving it to the Father. I find that a very alarming statement. Uh, I'm not sure where in the Bible you would see praise to the essence. Um, Finally, I think there's a better reason to think about this stuff. Uh, And that is not because it helps us to think about gender relations. Maybe it does a bit. Uh, But what I've been trying to argue in my... Uh, my talk, and we'll try, again try tomorrow, is to say that the real, re- really good reason why we should think about uh, the patterns of relations between the Father and the Son is because it makes everything glorious. It means that um, uh, everything that we do is done in the light of the fa- and participates in the Father's love for his Son, and also participates in the Son's love and glorifying of his Father. Uh, we, um, there was a big fashion a few years back to talk about the Eastern idea of theosis, the idea that we are somehow kind of caught up in the, in the Godhead, made divine. And, you know, if it's really carefully kind of understood, that's okay, uh, but a bit of a distraction. Uh, it's a bit of mystical digression. But here actually is the real thing. 
because when we uh, love Jesus, we are joining with the Father to love Jesus. When we honor the Father and glorify him, we are uh, bearing much fruit and remaining in Jesus to my Father's glory. In other words, we find ourselves with the, with the persons of the Trinity as they love each other through us in the, in the unity of the Holy Spirit. More on that tomorrow. Uh, there's my kind of thousand-foot survey. Uh, does anybody want to comments or questions? Yes. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yeah, well, that's right. I think it's an analogy. Uh, but it's an analogy that people have used. And if it's done carefully, it's okay. And you can use obedience in that sense too, um, as we saw. Uh, but it needs to be done carefully. Um, but there is, there is some kind of um, something more in the idea of the decrees. So I think there, there has to be uh, some kind of conformity or act active conformity on the part of the son, for example, in response to the father's decision to create this frame of world. Yeah, that'd be a lovely way to put it, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I want to be careful how you put that. Thomas Aquinas would say that he receives the, de the decrees of God, the decisions of God, uh, along in the, in the same moment as his eternal generation. Moment, inverted commas. Yeah. I think there's a problem there because that would make Jesus subordinate to the, uh, the free actions of God. He's born, in other words, with those decisions already locked in place. I think it's a much better model that we get from the, the Puritans where the suggestion is that Jesus is eternally and necessarily born uh, of the Father and then actively responds to the Father's uh, decisions, joyfully receives uh, uh, what the Father wants, decides to do. Yeah. Security now is the answer. Mm. Yeah, sure. Well, Jesus wants you to refer back to the one, doesn't he, even when he's on earth? Um, show us the Father. How can you say that? He says to Philip, you know, the Father is living, working through me. Um, so he thinks 
that we can have this referring back to the one, the oneness of the Father and his unity with the Father, uh, even in the context of his humanity. Uh, so if it's possible there, it should be possible for us to, to believe that in eternity, in thinking about it in eternal relations, where it's obviously going to be without that separation of time and space and whatever else. Yeah. But, yeah, we do want to live with a space, don't we, so we can actually say they love each other. Uh, we, don't want to, we don't want to kind of make them so kind of um, reflexive or make them, again, surface phenomena really kind of don't have any kind of relational thickness. I think that's a problem. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think uh, I think we we want to honour the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in, in the heavenly realms. But every basically we we acknowledge being Christocentric doesn't mean we forget about the Father. For example, we acknowledge that when we have Jesus, we have the Father who sent him. We're Christocentric. We're not Christomonist. Um, we, we love part of the reason why we love Jesus is because he shows us the Father uh, and so that's a good thing to say to kind of bring out that those two aspects all that Jesus is is, is, is from his Father um, well, I'll talk more about how the Spirit works there too I think tomorrow but does that help a bit? it's a good question and I'm not sure I've kind of got teeth into it Um, we might have. Yeah, we might have. Who's the... There's that Thomas Smales book, Forgotten Father, I think. Yeah. I uh, don't know who was first. Yep, Sandra. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's actually true. There, there's, a, there's a flow backwards and forwards. So we often think, okay, start with the Bible, then we do systematic theology from that, um, and that's good and true. But it does actually go the other way too, doesn't it? Systematic theology is allowed to think about what must be or can be true or can't be true, and then is allowed to kind of propose that or kind of insist on that to people who, um, um, as people 
read the Bible. And I, what I've noticed, I think, is that uh, sometimes exegetes, uh, biblical scholars, read the Bible without, if, they, if they're reading without an awareness of what systematic the, theologians say, they miss an obvious possibility for what the text might say and what Christian history has said. I, I, I often find this, I think, with people saying that the Trinity isn't found in a certain part of the Bible or something like that. What they're looking for is something that actually I wouldn't recognise as the Trinity myself uh, because they don't understand the kind of great tradition. Uh, they, don't, they don't think it's there. Uh, so, yeah, there needs to be traffic both ways, I think. Um, Uh, keep testing against the Bible. Uh, yeah. Good question. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'll have to think about it and try and give you their answer tomorrow. Yep. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'd want to know what they mean by the doctrine of appropriations because if they mean that the Father and Son and Spirit don't really, um, you know, if the, the Father doesn't really come up with the idea to create the world, then what we're doing is actually referring it back to the essence. Again, Matthew Barrett does this, I think. Mark Jones does it as well in the context of the 2016 debate. I think... Uh, that is reifying or personifying the essence. And again, it leaves the father with nothing to do except to be a kind of first appearing of what the essence has decided. So that's a, that's a kind of radical appropriation that I want to reject, I think. Um, in, on, in terms of the covenant of redemption, I think we can see a bit of variation, say, between John Owen and Thomas Goodwin on this. Um, and maybe some people really reflect Owen's thinking rather than Goodwin or Edwards' thinking. Mm. Yeah, go. Yeah.
Yeah. I'll have you have a read of my review of, of Simply Trinity on the Gospel Coalition website, because I I kind of half want to agree with you. I think yes, there he does kind of uh, want to kind of talk about it in both ways, and in a way that I respect. He's very Western, traditional Western in that way. He's very Augustinian, very uh, very Tom, Thomist. Uh, but I also think that there are various points where he decides to iron it out a bit and then he does actually ascribe to the essence um, things that the Bible, I think, ascribes to the Father. In fact, you know, as I said, talked before about him accusing our ERS people of taking honour or glory from the essence and giving it to the Father. That does seem to pit those, those two concepts to, against each other in a way which is unhelpful, I think. Yeah, but that's what we would do according to the Nicene model, but just in a personal kind of way. Um, so yes, the, the three persons do decide, but they follow according to the orders of subsistence from Father, uh, expressed in the Son and, and Spirit, or through the Son and Spirit. Uh, what we don't want to do... Well, maybe this is the, the distinction. I think the distinction is, do we think of the Father as a subsistence... Or do, you think, do we think of him as the one from whom the Son and Spirit subsist? That's the difference between Western Trinitarianism and Eastern Trinitarianism, actually. Uh, and I think the East, Eastern model is more biblical in that sense. Uh, the, the idea of the, the three persons being equally subsistent uh, feels philosophically kind of more satisfying, perhaps, but I think it's a philosophical uh, construct. Uh, the Bible refers things back to the Father, not to the essence beyond the Father, or, or never ever depicts the Father as the first example of an essence or something. Uh, rather, the Son and Spirit come from Him. No, no, because they are, well, in the Son's case, He's a true offspring of His Father. So, just like a child is, a, is equally human to every parent. Um, the son is equally divine uh, because he's, he's a true son of his father. Uh, social Trinitarianism uh, has a generic idea of uh, uh, a generation, perhaps, maybe. Um, so if you wanted to think of it, it's really a, you're ending up with an analogy of each of the persons has their own, uh, their own will and their own power. So Cornelius Plantinga is the best exponent of this, uh, which is kind of like humans. You know, We do share a common nature, and we inherit things from our parents, 
but it's in a generic sense. And like I said, you know, one person can die. They pool their resources. You've got more energy. But whereas with the Trinity, it's dynamic. So it's a, communicate, a live communication of essence rather than a, a kind of new appearance of a separate um, power or will. Yes. Well, no, they are. <laughs> they're the same essence. They're still human. No, I'm not saying the same instance of an essence. I'm saying it's, it's the same power and will and authority communicated from the Father and then possessed again by the Son. So it's it's a balance. It's actually a kind of dialectic. Uh, remember the, tr- the kind of contention diagram I tried to show we need to maintain both that the son possesses uh, the father's will and power etc in himself and we need to, to insist that it's, it's the father's will and power uh, which is in the son unbroken um, otherwise we'll, we'll end up with modalism or tritheism uh, and, and those things are kind of true for us as well but also not you know. so there, it is an analogy No, no, that sounds great. Uh, and you're using, you're using analogies that the fathers all use. I mean, if you look at that stupid leprechaun uh, YouTube clip, um, it says, oh, you know, the sun is like the radiance of the sun from the father, and says, oh, that's Arianism, which is absolutely wrong. All the orthodox fathers of the fourth century use that analogy. Uh, the sun streams forth from the father uh, like light from the sun. They are inseparable. The sun cannot exist without the radiance that comes from the star. Um, And the sun cannot himself be radiance without his father. Or or another analogy, the the father and son are like a spring and the flow that comes from a spring. You can't have a spring unless there's something flowing from it. And you can't have the flow without the source. Uh, These are analogies they use again and again. Uh, And is is that submission? Yes, you can. Again, it's an an analogy. Um, Fred Sanders says, you know, you kind of basically paints that picture and says, I don't know what they call it in, in the happy land of the Trinity, but in, in our world, it's something like obedience or submission, uh, which is, I guess is wonderful. So.
what, what Bart says. Yeah, no, I think that's that's fine. Um, yeah, again, all these things are analogies, but that the radiance of God's glory is already saying that, isn't it? Light from light, it's it's the same thing. The light from light referring to Hebrews uh, one. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, if you if you want to use that word, and uh, you can use it, but remember what it means and doesn't mean. It does. <laughs> it doesn't mean that Jesus is, is a different and inferior God, who needs to be um, who needs to be ordered uh, reluctantly, for example. Um, to do what his father says. There is actually some reluctance in his human existence because his human will uh, doesn't want to die and be separated from God, which is an entirely appropriate and good thing to want. But he overrides that with his filial will. Uh, And the result is that Jesus, the man, uh, acts in accordance with who he is as God's eternal son. But in the context of his human life, that conformity uh, requires time, effort, blood and and tears in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. Uh, It is ineffable and perfect and without cost or change. Um, Yeah. But it's always from the Father. Yes, though again, the decrees have to be different. (laughs) What's that? The decrees have to be different from the essence. Um, The divine essence cannot make decisions. It has to be a person making decisions. Because if if the essence makes decisions, uh, then we're back at pantheism. Because everything the essence is, is what God necessarily is that's a simple essence that's the kind of rule of divine simplicity Uh, yes you could call it an act of will as uh, Maximus does I think Um, but the will itself is the set of desires that are natural to God the decrees are things that God decides to do over and above that. Yeah, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Mm. But, yeah, that's, that's true, because what I'm saying is that they all have, for want of a better term, 
the potentiality to do one of these infinite things that they might do. They'll possess that because they are identical. Uh, but somebody has to actualize or decide which we're going to actualize, if you, if you want to put it that way. And if it's following the order of the Trinity, then it will be the Father who decides. And then the Son says, that's a great idea. Let's do that. Uh, but it's not happening in time, and nobody knows how that would work. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that would follow the order of subsistence. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Well, well what I would, I'd want to ask back then is what's wrong with saying exactly what you said but saying that the, that the God who makes this decision is the Father who then decides and acts through his Son and Spirit? Uh, he, that's, he, uh, the reception or, and action of the Son and Spirit is part of his, um, of his deciding in the same way that he, being himself, radiates out the Son and, and, and Spirit, if you see what I mean. So... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we might be quite close there at that point then. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I understand your, your concern about acts of will. Maybe it's a poor choice of words. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Decrees. <laughs> I mean, it, it needs to be distinguished from the will, but it, it's, it's, it's something that relates to the will, isn't it? Because God doesn't decide to do things that are hostile to his will. Um, but I'm using will in a slightly different sense when I say an act of will. One, will in the, in the classical 7th century kind of debate sense means set of desires. Act of will kind of is speaking more of a faculty, I guess. Yeah, so maybe there's a kind of equivocation that's not helpful there. Yeah. Um, so did you mean ontological and economic? Or Yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, uh, well, I'm saying it's an analogy. So I'm saying that the eternal relationship between the Father and Son finds an analogy in the subordination of Jesus to his Father.
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Um, except if you see things that are there once, for example, 1 Corinthians 11.3, you're allowed to talk about that. Uh, yeah, well, that's wrong, isn't it? Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think people, I think systematic theologians react sometimes, and I'm talking about both this, uh, theologians on both sides of this debate, uh, because they are worried, and sometimes they are rightly worried, that the, the that what's being talked about is an actual subordination, uh, rather than kind of a nuanced analogy or something like that. So they they see kind of flares and rockets shoot up uh, every time somebody uses that. And sometimes that's wrong, and sometimes, but sometimes it's right. Um. I mean, it's, it's all terminology, isn't it? So Philip Schaff uh, and his NCNF kind of volumes just calls eternal generation functional subordination. Um, long before this debate kind of was around. So it all, mean, it all depends what you mean by that. And interestingly, of course, there's a kind of, in the, the early 20th century, late 19th century, there's a big movement where you get people like Warfield saying, oh, eternal generation, that's subordination. Got to get rid of that. If there's a kind of order in the Trinity, it's just because of the, the agreement between the persons. You get quite a bit of that in the 19th century, which I think is part of the reason why everything went bad. Um, so, all depends what you mean. Eternal generation is great. Yeah. And true. Yeah. Carl? Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's, uh, getting back to Andrew's question too, about how exege exegesis and systematic theology work against, work with each other, I think that's all we can do is keep pushing back. And systematic theologians are allowed to say, you haven't understood, thought about this. And exegetical theologians are allowed to say, um, well, hold on a minute, that's not, doesn't, doesn't line up with scripture. Um, and other systematic theologians are allowed to critique some other systematic theologians and say, no, you don't. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about, or that logic doesn't doesn't logically flow or follow. Um, 
And it's not that... I don't think we're in a vicious circle there, but I need to kind of probably spend still some more time thinking about explaining why. I can't. I, I remember what you're talking about, but I can't remember the details of it. So, yeah, sorry. Yeah, a lot of stuff gets thrown around. Yeah, yeah. I was reading one thing where people, ERS people, were simultaneously accused of being modalists and tritheists, which are pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but th that's true across the board, of course, isn't it? When we, we know anything about God, we trust that he's set up our natures uh, that in such a way that we are capable of knowing and logical truth about him and that he is giving us words that speak truly about those natures. So if, unless we had loving, we had love in our own existence, we wouldn't have any way of making sense of God's love. Which is not to say that God's love is the same as our love, um, but we trust that he has built us in a, in a way that um, is analogically appropriate for, for us knowing him. Uh, I think we're like dogs, you know. Dogs can be friends with people, um, but their understanding of the friendship is very different from the person's understanding. Um, but there's enough overlap that we can be friends somehow. Um, I think God's made us like that. There's a little bit of overlap. Um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there's the problem, isn't it? Yes, if that's right, if, the, if all that is in God is God, then we're back to panentheism and there's no escape. I'm saying that there's a third category. Uh, well, in the East they call it the energies of God. Um, I guess ideas, rationes in the West... Uh, decrees, they all have that, have that same category. They're eternal, uh, but they're not. They're not God because they're not necessary. They're not. They're not His essence. Uh, well, it might be a helpful doctrine of the, the simplicity of the essence, 
that it's not a universally true statement. Yes. Mm. Same way he learns everything in his human nature, I think. So he grows in knowledge and favour, you know. His, in his human existence, he learns stuff and experiences new stuff, um, which is particular to his human existence. So he experiences, uh, he learns obedience through suffering uh, because it hurts him to do the Father's will. Um, and therefore he becomes a you know, faithful and sympathetic high priest for us. Uh, he's, he's perfected, as Hebrews puts it, by these things. His humanity, his human existence becomes completed. Um, so that's a really important thing, isn't it? Jesus, we, we talk about God as in, is immutable and the Son must be immutable too. Uh, but in his human life, there is, there is a story which, which moves to completeness along with history because it's one story, actually, his story and the story of the world. Ultimately, yeah. Does that help? Sorry, does that help answer your question? Well, again, that's the um, the analogy thing, I guess. Yeah. Um, it, it, interesting context there, of course, is although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Uh, I think everybody would, in, in those days would have agreed that a son is in some sense obedient to their father. Um, so there's both continuity and um, implicit continuity and explicit kind of something new. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. a really good source. Again, if you look up my review of um, Simply Trinity by Matthew Barrett um, that I did, I think in a footnote I've got a reference to Michael Horton talking about the energies. He kind of, kind of gives a reformed ver- kind of critique of that, but I think he, I think he is right in what he says. So he's quite sympathetic to the idea, and I think he's right to be sympathetic to it. You mean history? Yeah, well, it goes. Um, yeah, where would it go to? I guess um, Maximus. You can see it coming through there. Um, it's it's more apparent in the 14th century in Byzantine theology, but some people would say it's back, it's in Gregory of Nyssa as well. I think, um, but that's more specialised knowledge that I have off the top of my you know, I have off the top of my head. Yeah. 
I think there's quite a bit of discussion there, but I, I think, and I, I think if it was necessary, it would be heretical. Yeah, yeah. So, but but all these guys, they kind of like neoplatonism a bit. Um, that's because they. S- oh, I'd say that's that's the kind of category that we're talking about. I wouldn't necessarily use that word, but that's the kind of that's the category it fits in. Uh, so energy is, is what it's, it's that kind of uh, uh, it's God but it's not the es- essence of God in the sense that it belo- it's proper to God's eternity but not a necessary aspect of God or something which is the same as energy I think, uh, in an, or understood in an orthodox way which I think you can <laughs> <laughs> check check Horton. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think there have been good things come out of it. Uh, but the danger always with the theological discussions is that we end up with pendulum swings. Um, so I don't know what's going to happen, but we should pray, I guess, that um, uh, God helps us to be charitable to one another and, and think carefully. And um, yeah, There's a lot of uncharity that goes on in this discussion, I think. Um, yeah, which stops us actually listening carefully because we're, we're very busy trying to show why other people are heretics or something not always a helpful kind of stance extra time oh it's five to six that's a good time for us to stop isn't it unless you've got any, anybody got any last comments or questions <laughs> good on you Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all, you know, all ways are limited. But I, 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 I think my preferred way is, um, is maybe going in through the Old Testament. So God has always been working in the world through, through agents, through people. Um, he shares things with people. He, he shares his words to some people and gets them to pass them on. Uh, he shares his rule with humans and kings and stuff. But what, what all these things are pointing to is that there's a person who's his own son who he has always shared everything with. Uh, and he loves, and actually he's the kind of true king and the true prophet and the true priest. And when he comes into the world, all those things kind of fade in comparison to him. Um, but he's, he's God's true son, just like God. 
uh, and God loves him and we, we should love him too. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> we'll talk about the Holy Spirit tomorrow. <laughs> How about I pray for us then? Uh, dear Heavenly Father, uh, Thank you for sending your son into the world. Uh, We love him and we want to obey him. We want to honour him and we want to honour you through obeying him. We want your Holy Spirit to help us in these things. We want to understand you better. Please guard us against uh, intellectual pride um, of claiming too much knowledge about things that we can't know. Help us to Um, go back to your word and test the things that we think and say and believe against that. Please help us to be charitable and careful when we talk to one another. And uh, please keep reforming us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.